Welcome to the OIS Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Jill Hopkins, now the Senior Vice President and Global Head of the Ophthalmology Development Unit for Novartis. She's also a former colleague of our host, Dr. Firas Rehal. Together, they look back on her academic career, her time at Retinal Vitreous Associates, and her upward path to Genentech, Roche, and Novartis. Take it away, Firas. Welcome back, everyone, to the OIS Retina podcast. Uh, again, this is Firas Rahal, member of Retina Vitreous Associates Medical Group in LA and a member of Excite Ventures VC firm in New York. And I'm delighted to have today a very good friend of mine and a former colleague here in L.A., uh, Dr. Jill Hopkins. She's joined us. I'll go into some of her bio, but first, uh, thanks for joining, Jill, and welcome. Thanks, Ross. Lovely to be here and would never say no to a request from you. So it's great to, <laughs> great to see you again. You're very kind. <laughs> um, you're currently Senior Vice President and Global Head in the Ophthalmology Development Unit at Novartis. Is that the correct Yes. That's the correct title. Yep. Lots of acronyms for you there. But yeah, yeah, I love it. It's a great title. It's a very heady title. And I want to come back to that. We're going to talk about your position and hear a lot more from you about it. But I wanted to start with a little bit of your background. If you don't mind, I'll recite a little bit and then would love to hear from you. Okay. Sounds good. So you, you did your training in Toronto, University of Toronto for residency, and then you did a medical retina fellowship at Moorfields Eye Hospital. Very eclectic mix of places. What do you remember about some of those experiences, if anything? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been such a fortunate and fun career for me throughout it all. I mean, University of Toronto, born and raised there, so really excited to be a part of that program. They had an excellent vision science program um, back in the day. It's a few decades ago now. I won't date myself too much, but um, really just a, a fantastic mix, really, of very good teaching hospitals, very busy practices in Canada. I mean, we were, after a few years in practice there, you realize you were a bit under-resourced as a retinal specialist. There, there just weren't enough of us to keep up with the volumes, but as a resident, just incredible opportunities to to have a lot of surgical volume, a lot of interesting case volume, and and a wonderful teaching environment too, where we really dove into you know research projects, um, academic bent. Uh, it was it was really outstanding as as a training program. And then more fields, I have to say, just, you know, an incredible experience. I had the pleasure of working with Alan Bird and uh, just, again, a place that had incredible ranges of diseases and wonderful mentors and teachers. And, you know, the first day as a fellow there, I thought they were kind of kidding. I mean, I did a rare disease clinic and it was all those things you'd only ever read about in textbooks. And there were family after family coming through the doors with these and you're like do they set this up for the fellows just to you know but that was an average day at Moorfield so um yeah again just fantastic and living in different cities and countries and and learning sort of the different ways that medicine is practiced and thought about was was really helpful as well that's great it sounds amazing and I've heard that about uh, Alan Bird's clinics uh, and, and the, the prowess of his skill is well well documented you then became a medical retina specialist you're a clinical doctor for quite some time academic initially, University of Toronto, and of course here at USC, and then ultimately my favorite part of your career is when you joined <laughs> us at Retina Vitreous Associates. Your patients still ask about you. Some of oh, them are with you. me still, and so um, that's an interesting combination of things, and then uh, I want to hear about that, but then you transition to industry, which everyone knows about and knows you now in industry. I remember you when. That must have been a hard decision. I'd like to hear about your thoughts on that decision at that time? What were the difficulties? And had you planned that all along? Uh, I don't mean like written it out, but did this come to you suddenly? How did you come to that decision? 
Yeah, it's a great question for us. I think, you know, it's interesting when you look back on your career and it looks sort of planned and directional, but it really isn't, right? I mean, I think for me, it was about the opportunities that were in front of me and what really, you know, piqued my interest and fueled my passion for, you know, I think what for me, it's always been about that sort of intersection of innovation and, you know, development and patient impact um, at, at various scales. And so I think about, you know, again, I was eight years on faculty at University of Toronto, loved it. I, I had a great experience there. I did a mix of medical retina and hereditary retinal degenerations. Very happy there. I remember walking to work one day thinking, I'll retire from University of Toronto 30 years from now. <laughs> and like, I swear the next week, Mark Humayan and Eugene Dewan called me and said, hey, we're building a retinal degeneration unit at USC. We're working on this retinal prosthesis. What do you think? And I was like, Ooh, and you know, of course, your your sensible brain goes. I have you know three kids under six years old. I'm fully embedded in Toronto. Why would I move to USC? There, I end up moving to USC because again, it was that the potential to do something so striking and different for people. And and um, worked on the Argus retinal prosthesis, the phase one trials were the initial one there. Um, so yeah, you sort of make these decisions just because the opportunities are too exciting. And and um, I would say the same with getting the opportunity to work with you guys at at RVA. I mean, it was you guys were really visionary in terms of what you wanted to do in terms of clinical trials in rare diseases in common diseases and building a clinical trials unit that at that time was unprecedented right you you, you know and, and smaller companies were going there to to investigate things so again we got to work on all the cntf trials again that intersection of device and drug and patient impact was just so exciting and again completely happy there i mean i had a wonderful gig with you guys i had my you know a few days a week of medical retina um i had my hereditary retinal degeneration work we ran the erg lab and it was just you know it was perfect wasn't having any intention of going anywhere. Um, John Snisarenko called me. I don't know if you know John. He worked at Novartis mm-hmm. in Canada for many years. And I worked with him a lot in my University of Toronto days. He just moved to Genentech and said, you know, there's a really interesting role here. You should think about it. So almost as a favor to John, I'm like, okay, I'll go up and meet the folks there. And and I was really struck by, you know, again, at Genentech, Roche, just the, the depth of science, the quality of the people, the patient at the heart of things. Uh, and I was really impressed. So I did a hybrid for a while, as you know, I kind of did mm-hmm. a couple of days a week still in clinic and a few days up at Genentech and just really was struck by, again, at that stage of my career, I'd been 20 years almost in clinical and academic medicine. Um, and just the scale and and impact you could have at that large research industry level. Um, so I, I made the the leap full time um, in about 2012. I think I initially uh, moved up to San Francisco, again, hauled the family up, uh, up the coast <laughs> and uh, loved it. I mean, again, just sort of the, you know, I think we drop our drug and clinic really having no thought about everything that goes into that. So just the ability to learn the regulatory and the manufacturing and the, you know, just everything that that takes was really great. And, and also love the opportunities to develop other physicians, lead a large team, have a really global footprint in terms of the work I was doing. So just love that and had, you know, a decade there, uh, uninterrupted of just having a, a wonderful time. And again, to work on great projects, support delivery system was a, a big one for me that I sort of joke is my fourth child of just the effort and, and commitment and, and, um, you know, problem solving you had to do to bring something like that to market was was a great experience. I'm glad you brought up PDS. We, I want to talk with you about that. I know how uh, important that was for you at that time, and it obviously now has come to fruition. What was what was the first position that you were doing there? I don't mean titles, but what were your assigned duties? What what kind of day to day function were you doing in the beginning at Roche Genentech? 
Yeah. So it was, you go in as sort of a medical director and I, I have to admit, I mean, the first three months I was, I was thinking, what have I done? I didn't understand a <laughs> word people were talking about in terms of all the acronyms and cross-functional this and that. And, um, but as a medical director, you, I mean, for example, I worked on Lucentis at that time, they were working on the diabetic macular edema submission and approval. Um, so you did everything from medical data monitoring to um, partnering with uh, people on publications, patient advocacy. It was just, again, a really nice um, mix of, of activities. Um, and then from there, sort of then, you know, I think the typical path often within industry is that medical director, then you move up and you maybe lead a group of people, um, then you might have an even larger global team. And so on PDS, for example, I was what they call the global development team lead, which you're really leading the entire process. And there, that was fun, because it had the big engineering component, it had the, you know, device development, plus the, the drug delivery piece. And so it's uh, that that was a really good opportunity and, and fun um, fun experience. Despite challenges, it was really rewarding to be driving towards something where we saw such unmet need. Yeah, that has to be rewarding now to see it even in this later stages make it to commercialization. What do you remember about that program? What were the challenges? Uh, obviously, the joy is seeing it develop, but there must have been some challenges too. What what did you think about that in retrospect? Was did it go smoothly all along? Were there some some bumps in the road that you had to overcome? Yeah, bumps in the road always. And I think, you know, again, it was a testament just to the quality of the people and the commitment there to to seeing that this was an unmet need and to follow it through. But every step of the way, there would be some challenge to overcome, whether it was a device design issue or, you know, then you look again at scaling up, right? So it's one thing to build a device for a phase one, two trub when you really think what are we going to need to commercialize this we had to actually build a manufacturing facility that could start that at risk almost to know that you could deliver from a, a commercial perspective and then in the um phase two trials we had some challenges with vitreous hemorrhages and i think um there what was again just that tremendous capacity i think what i've learned if anything is just bring all the right people to the table and solve the problem and and there it was very much working with surgeons you know like yourself we had a wonderful surgical steering committee that we just had on speed dial we're like this should be a fixable problem so then we were able to leverage you know an animal model to develop that we altered the the surgical procedure and overcame that problem um uh, you know allowing things to go forward into phase three and and beyond and that was exciting when you look at again the impact it had in terms of the duration and the the vision um, compared to monthly Lucentis. So exciting to see it get there. And again, so commendable that the commitment was there to see it through the ups and downs and, and uh, challenges. I love your uh, positivity. You've always been positive and even recognizing the challenges. You say it in a way that sounds pretty good. Um, you had a short stint where you left Genentech, Unity Biotechnology, right? What I was did. that all about? Did, were you were you um, attracted to the startup world? Now you were in a big pharma, and then you went to do this. You ultimately came back to big pharma, which we'll come to the current momentarily. But um, what was that all about? Did you was it because you wanted to do something startup style? Yeah, it was. So again, I've been kind of a decade in in um, the big pharma and had enjoyed it. Um, again, wasn't really looking to make a change, but this opportunity came along and it was really interesting that Unity is working on this senescence biology, as you may know, which is just a fascinating idea, right? That could, you know, senescent cells be targeted with a senolytic therapy that could then alter the whole course of um, 
sort of surrounding inflammatory and, and secondary diseases. So the appeal was, it was, you know, again, early science, early stage, but they said, you know, come work with us and see what it would be like to build a program in the eye. So everything from retinal disease to glaucoma, what might we do here? So I was attracted by, I think the very early stage, I'd done mostly late stage at Genentech. So the thought to go to really early, like pre first in human and have an opportunity to really dive in on that and really also see what a small company was like, right? And it was really small when I started, it grew considerably, it went public in the time I was there. Yeah. Um, so it was a really wonderful opportunity to just build a whole set of muscles I, I didn't have. And, and I was, you know, I was interested in what that world felt like. I was also interested in the skills you'd learn wherever you would go from that around just agility and, um, you know, running things in parallel and managing an ambiguity. I just thought that would be a good opportunity to really um, develop, as I say, some kind of new muscles that I hadn't uh, hadn't built before. It's fun. I've never been in a startup, but I invest in startups and the entire process is fascinating. And you're literally learning on a day to day basis because so much is happening uh, relative to the final finish line. And I'm sure you had a great time. You did ultimately go back to Big Pharma, though, and um, to the current. So if anything, did something draw you back? Did you like the Big Pharma better? What, What made you return then? Yeah, so interesting. So yeah, again, with loving the experience at Unity, it was really um, everything I had set out to to discover. But I will say, I actually got lured back to Big Pharma originally, back to Genentech um, yeah. by Tony Adamus, who we all know well, um, who I worked with there for many, many years. And he was building out the personalized healthcare. So the approach to artificial intelligence, data and digital and ophthalmology, um, and had a role for me to come and, and lead that in in the eye. So that was just again, couldn't say no to that. It, it just sounded like the perfect intersection of, of that future focus. You know, how do we think about not just drug development, but but the whole patient journey in that space? How can we use AI to to improve everything from screening to therapeutic decision making? So that was just great. So I did that for a couple of years, and um, that was a really outstanding experience. And again, super um, helpful to have been in a small company. It's sort of with a bunch of the skills that were learned there because the whole PHC thing was very new in a larger pharma organization. So you needed a lot of that same kind of skill set. So, so that was great. And then um, Novartis came knocking with this, um, this role to, you know, lead the entire franchise. And I, um, I just felt like, well, there's only a couple of those in the world. And that's probably a, a once in a career opportunity to go and yeah. do that to, you know, Again, large global development unit, front of the eye to back of the eye. Um, it just felt like that sort of next step that that would really, again, build build some new muscles on top of the ones I had. So I uh, couldn't say no to that one. So it's been um, been interesting. This has been almost all done through the pandemic. I've been in this role about one year. So um, have had less opportunity to travel the globe to meet everyone as, as I would like, but uh, we'll get there. So this is still a relatively new position for you, about a year. What are your well, obviously there are a million duties, but what do you, how would you describe your primary principal duties or secondary duties in this position? Yeah, so primary is really driving the development. So the, you know, the core, Novartis is organized in a way that has Novartis Institute for Biomedical Research. So that's their early stage. Then we have what we call global drug development where I sit and that's the the later stage. And then of course the commercial um, organization and medical affairs. And so, yeah, it's really sort of in that intersection, um, really ensuring, I like to sort of call it like a one opta approach. So, you know, what's being worked on in Nibber is part of the strategy for GDD, is part of the strategy of how we'll get 
that then to patients, right? So it's really about developing the, the mid to late stage um, portfolio um, in close collaboration with, with early stage development as well. So it's really been um, wonderful, I think, in terms of, again, this the quality of the colleagues, the focus on unmet need, the patient at the center. It's been a very um, exciting ride. I've got a lot of interest as well in, in data, digital, all those things. So it's been a nice um, sort of fit in terms of, of what I could bring to that role. And this will be a position, as you said, anterior and posterior segment. I imagine you're looking at all things. Is it drug and device and or anything related to ophthalmology or are, is it specific to some sub areas? Yeah, it's pretty anything related. Into, I mean, it's sort of front of eye, back of eye, and then thinking about, uh, to your point, I mean, I think you can't work in ophthalmology and not be really focused on drug delivery, right? I mean, I think yep. that those two go hand in hand, whether that's how we deliver better at the front of the eye or how we, you know, deliver appropriately for the back of the eye. So I think, um, yeah, it is really thinking about that. And we, we really work, you know, with sort of a strategy that says what's happening in early stage, what's out there in the you know business development and licensing landscape and what have we got in, in mid-stage development and try and deliver on those three uh, aspects. I want to get back to the timing. That's a great question that may, maybe you'll be able to share with us. But with regard, let's talk a little bit about the, the science part of it. We're both clinicians. Um, yeah. Drug delivery into the posterior segment, you brought that up. It's a huge hot topic. We'll have a million panels on it again in the upcoming meetings. As an investor, we're looking at it all the time. As a clinical trialist, we're looking at them all the time. Um, you know, they fall in different flavors now. There's polymers, there's surgical devices. We spoke about one. Uh, there's conjugates to drugs. Then there's just drugs themselves that are longer half-lives. How do you view this? Are they all going to be, oh, gene therapy, another extending yep. duration? Are they all going to work? Is Are we going to crystallize this down? And I know it's crystal ball for you, but you have an expertise I want to hear from. Uh, where will we finish with all this? Uh, all of them? Some of them? What, what's your bias? Yeah, it's a great question. I think we'll finish with some of them. And I, I say that again, you're just looking back at the, the history of the port delivery development that when we started that, which was a long time ago, there were a whole host of things that were in that competitive landscape, if you will, right? Lots of people working on lots of different things. And a lot of those didn't make it. And I will just say, and you know as well, drug delivery to the eye is hard. And, and finding something that balances a really good safety profile with good efficacy when you have, although burdensome, good intravitreal injections, right? There's always, it's a trade-off. And we've seen that, I would say, time and again as a field, particularly over the last you know couple of years, right? That things that we thought had tremendous promise. Um, I mean, the Kodiak results, I think, surprised all of us, right? That was not, that was not what I was expecting based on, on what had happened there. We've seen, you know, really unfortunate consequences with um, gene therapy, with Adverum, for example. So I think, you know, the, the easy answer to that is, I don't know. I mean, I think there's a lot that that can happen that changes all of the the planning and, and development on, on a dime. But I will say that I think having multiple approaches is the way to go, right? So if you think of a, a surgical permanently indwelling device or a gene therapy, that will be great in some diseases, in some patients, in some cases, there are going to be some that aren't going to, you know, some patients won't be candidates for that for a host of reasons. So what else can we think about that would be, you know, manageable? I think ideally, if you could design the perfect holy grail of drug delivery, I think in office would be great. Um, I think long acting with a tremendous safety profile would be great. Um, but we're going to have to, I think, do the work and, and run the trials and see which of those at the end of the day, provide that for us in, in the best way. 
um, it, it's an interesting dilemma, right? You think of, you know, when you look at monthly injections, you look at the clinics we used to run at RVA running those injections, even all those years ago. If you think of something like an intravitreal therapy for another major indication coming, what's the capacity going to be like for that for patients and physicians and, and their caregivers, right? It's, it's going to be hard. So I think long acting to me still feels like the way we've got to go, but let's be, you know, selective about what, what the right, the best indications for that are. I couldn't agree more when you talk about other indications. Obviously, coming around the corner, we think is dry AMD. That's eight to 10x uh, volume of patients, we think, than we have now. And we're already sort of busting at the seams, providing injections. So we do have to find a way. And some great companies are developing, you know, Apellis and Iveric are in phase three trials. We're maybe not that far from another deluge of patients like we saw in 2005, 2006, 2007 with wet AMD and then diabetic retinopathy that could be right around the corner. Um, You made an excellent point that I make, uh, I try to make frequently in, in my conversations with investors or people evaluating an opportunity. Um, it's, uh, and I call it the high bar, the high bar that has been set by anti-VEGF drugs. We, we really underestimate the more than generational quality of these few drugs and this category of drugs. It's been as impactful as anything in, in medicine, obviously in both of our lifetimes and, and maybe much longer. Do you guys think about this all the time in, in the backdrop of any development plan? I assume you do. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to. I mean, it's it's amazing. I mean, I spent the first half of my career in clinic pre-anti-VEGF. I mean, we had PDT, we lasered. I mean, I'm old enough that I was doing macular photocoagulation for CNVs, and that was discouraging. PDT was better, and at least you offered something to patients. But when you look at the absolute you know, game-changing impact of anti-VEGF, like how lovely was it to be part of that, right? To, to actually be restoring vision for people in a setting where you hadn't been able to. I mean, it was incredible, but it is a really high bar. And I think we also have, you know, a, a pleasant complacency, if you will, with the safety of those drugs overall, right? I mean, I think that we had many, many years of great efficacy, great safety. You take something like Lucentis, it's been on market for over 15 years with a tremendous profile. The big challenge has been the the burden of delivery, right? And I think we all acknowledge that. But it's hard when you think about looking at so how are you going to get above that bar? Like what, what's the right, you know, combination of, of things that have to happen. And, and, you know, we're probably not going to see another drug. I wouldn't think that is an additive of 15 letters on top of an anti-VEGF. I would be surprised to see that. Um, it's interesting seeing Fermisimab out with its dual mechanism of action now. And, you know, it would be really interesting to see in, in the hands of, of clinicians and, and patients, what the responses are there. Um, but it does make you think, you know, is it, is it new mechanism? Is it really still this delivery piece? that's going to drive that? Um, are there other pathways we, you know, we haven't explored that we need to be exploring? It's, as I say, it's not, it's not an easy business. <laughs> and people are looking at all of those. And uh, yep. now that Farisimab, you know, made it to the finish line and congratulations to them. Uh, it looks like it's going to be a great product. We'll see how it, it fits into the overall schema on the ground. And I'll be part of that. And I've already injected some patients with that drug. And of course we were in the trials as you, probably guessed. Um, I'm seeing in startup world, people are, you know, it's a copycat world, just like everything else that there's this, uh, the parlance is now bi-specific, bi-functional, and I'm hearing this over and over. And obviously there's reason for that and it's good, but, uh, you know, we always think we're going to reproduce better something that has been really good, but it often is the primrose 
path. And maybe maybe the drug delivery devices is really where devices or products, polymers, et cetera, maybe that's really where the action is to make patients' lives better in the next phase of this. Right. And it's interesting, too, to think about, you know, we think a lot about, I'm sure all companies do, and you do in, in your world as well, but just the sort of, you know, the endpoints and the meaningful things around development and approval and how, you know, how do we think about that going forward? And it's it's interesting in a space like geographic atrophy, where you may be intervening ahead of, quote, vision loss, um, but you're preserving vision, that's a, an amazing thing for people. But, it, you know, the endpoints may be different. So how do we sort of build that? And I'm a big fan of this sort of, you know, consortia approach, like we're stronger together if we get companies and academics and clinicians together to have those conversations and drive what we think is important. And maybe, you know, maybe a contrast sensitivity endpoint is going to be key for us five years from now, right? So I think just just driving those conversations. And again, that that multi-sector um, input, I think, is is something I always try and think about how we we do that most effectively. I think, uh, and you're in this space and, and know much more about it than I do. Artificial intelligence is going to help us in exactly that realm. How do we how do we measure these outcomes? How do we define them? How do we explain them to patients? That's all going to be really big with dry AMD. And how involved are you at this point with AI in its utility for either diagnostics or therapeutics? Yeah, we, we're using it a lot, exploring it a lot, as are many people. I, I think it's, um, again, the, the potential in so many different places along the patient journey. But if you think about even for, you know, as you say, treating geographic atrophy and being able to show patients what progression over time would look like or have, you know, a sense of you've progressed this much at this stage, this is what the next year looks like. It just changes the the quality, I would say, of the conversation you can have. And if you can use AI to say, right, I can look at, you know, the, the images over the last six months, or I can look at the images over six million people and have a, a you know, a data-driven discussion around that. I think it's really important, particularly if you're looking at long acting or sort of, um, permanent or surgical, you know, uh, potential for people to have therapy, you want to have confidence in, in them being at the right stage to, to be maximally effective. Yeah, I totally agree. I'll ask you one more sort of scientific question. And again, this is projection, uh, you know, crystal ball stuff. So feel free to run with it wherever you are. You <laughs> mentioned uh, stem cell gene therapies, let's call it regenerative medicine. There's, you know, the, the public is hot for this. There's a lot of science happening in ophthalmology in the posterior segment of the eye, quite specifically. Where do you think this goes? Is this gonna is this gonna be niche therapy or is are, are in 10 or 20 years we not gonna be injecting drugs but doing gene therapy as our principal uh, cornerstone of therapy in the back of the eye? Yeah, great question. I think about that one a lot too. I think you know, there's a lot of promise in gene therapy. I think the um, the delivery will be key. And again, you know, I have no doubt that uh, we've seen ophthalmology manage capacity shifts all the time, right? So you look at, you know, when we couldn't treat anything, we managed to pull in PDT, we pulled in macogen, we pulled in Lucentis, then Ilea, we just, you keep building that capacity. So when people say, oh, you know, a surgical treatment, will that be viable? I think surgeons will find a way. I think ophthalmologists will train themselves. If that's the best way to treat patients, there will be the surgical, um, you know, capacity and capability to do it. But I think, um, you know, cell therapy, I, mean, I think, again, it all holds so much promise. I still think we have so much to learn. I know I've, I've heard um, people use, you know, the sort of baseball analogy and saying, you know, we're kind of 
in the first inning, second inning, maybe, right? There's a lot we're learning. And again, I think the field is, as it often does, is that, that sort of snowball effect of we're all learning from one another. There, you know, there's a lot of activity in this space. Um, but again, I think ultimately it's going to come down to that safety and efficacy, um, patient and indication selection. And, and we're just going to, you know, ideally we'd have a a sort of toolbox, right? That would include a host of things, be it a host of intravitreal things, um, gene therapy, cell therapy. But I think there's still a fair bit to learn. And you know, be interested in your thoughts. Like cell therapy is another really interesting example, right? But it's you know, again, early days potential. We're seeing some early signals, but how do you manage potentially even immunosuppression or something like that? Like, what's the trade-off at which? all of that becomes uh, a, a good benefit risk for, for patients. So I think we're, there's lots still to be learned, but I, again, I hope that, you know, again, my idea of shared learnings, you know, everyone sort of very open about what they're learning and what they're finding to try and deliver the best potential um, suite of options for patients. Yeah. And I, I totally agree. And, and it is going to take a village, so to speak, this is really complex yeah. stuff and there's going to be a lot of pitfalls. We've seen some, you mentioned a couple, we were all disappointed by some of those outcomes, but there's some yeah. encouraging outcomes too, but the backdrop and the context will be, again, we're fortunate in our specialty to have these amazing drugs that work really well with a high efficacy and low, you know, complication rate. So on maybe unfair to upcoming uh, right. testing, but great for our patients because the, the fallback position is really good right now. Right, right. And I think what encourages me though, is I love to see all the activity there is in gene therapy and cell, because it shows that despite that, you know, the field in general is trying to push toward innovative new, new approaches, right? And I think that's good. There hasn't been the sort of, oh, we'll sit back and just have that. There's been a tremendous amount of activity in our field, which, which I think is, is exciting. So finally, for you, what personally, uh, you've done a lot. You've been, we, we reviewed it you've been in academics, you've been in private practice, you've run an ERG lab, which by the way, is still at Retina Vitreous. Uh, Dr. <laughs> David Liao is manning the ship for us after Fabulous. you, uh, doing a great job. We built that in your time. I, you remember yes. us purchasing all that equipment. I and building do. Now you've been obviously very successful in industry. This position is a very lofty position. What's left for you? Obviously, you're going to run with this for a while. Is this the one you'll ride into the sunset with? What What is your plan? Yeah, so, I, you know, I think it'll depend, won't it? I, you know, sort of what, as they say, when I look back at my career and go, hmm, I kind of made decisions with opportunities that came up and, and were too good to, to you know, not, not um, explore. So I think, yeah, I mean, I don't see myself sort of retiring into the sunset anytime soon. I think, again, there's just so much innovation and technology and, and all those things that have been so motivating and compelling for me. Um, I can always see having a hand in that somewhere. And as, you know, as I age, perhaps that's a little less of a pace that I keep now. Maybe it's more a consulting again, you know, sort of in line with what I was saying about just, we all, you know, do better together when we share that. So, you know, would there be a, a future where I could help consult smaller companies or bigger companies or whatever to, you know, share some of the experiences and learnings? Because I think we we all rise um, well when we, we uh, you know, sort of work through some of those things. So, so yeah, for now, with certainly uh, no, no plans to change. But yeah, I can see, you know, past retirement age still having a hand in things. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. Uh, listen, so glad you're so strongly in the game now and, and so glad. And we're lo lucky for our specialty. You plan to stay in the game a long time. You've, you've been and will be continue to be productive and 
also one of the nicest people in our business. Thanks for coming <laughs> on, Jill. My, it, it's been my pleasure. Thanks, Ross. Likewise. Thank you for listening, everyone. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the OIS Podcast. Be sure to listen in next week as we discuss the latest innovations in ophthalmology with experts in science, medicine, and industry. Subscribe to our iTunes channel so you don't miss a thing. Got a story of your own to tell? Apply to be a guest at OIS.net. <laughs>